he said, now, wait a minute. You've got things mixed up here. He says, what's, what's, what's wrong with you? He said, everybody brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the drinks, the guests have, have had too much to drink. But you save the best till now. Jesus constantly amazes us. I can't, John, I can't think of the hymn right now, that song, that wonderful thing, but it, it gets sweeter every day. Is there something like that? What is that? Sweeter every day? Every day? Every day? Well, it does, doesn't it, with Jesus? It just gets better and better. Better and better. Oh, there... We go through high and holy and wonderful experiences and we say it's mountaintop. Can't get any better than this. But Jesus always has something else in mind for us that'll even be better. On and on and on and on. In the last number of months, I've gone to the cemetery with members of my family too many times. My father... My only sister, a few months ago, my mother, a few weeks ago, a brother-in-law. In each of these instances, it seems like the valley, not so, or it's the realization that Jesus had saved the best until the last for them, and the glories of what he was giving to them in that place we call heaven. saved the best until now. John then writes this, the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. Don't you ignore the 11th verse. As you read the account of the miraculous sign miracle, you can understand it and its reason and why Jesus did it only as you read the 11th verse. He performed it. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. Oh, I tell you, this is an absolutely marvelous thing. We have a recurring theme. We could organize our study in John's Gospel around the, the two antithetical points of acceptance and rejection. For over and over again, we see that as Jesus spoke or as he performed his sign miracles or whatever he did, that there were those who believed and there were those who rejected him. Always been that way down through 2,000 years until today. So sometimes read the Gospel of John at one sitting, read it in a modern translation, and read it in the light of those who accepted him and why, and those who rejected him and why. And that's a revealing and an interesting study. Now we come to the cleansing of the temple. You will recall that in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the cleansing of the temple comes nearly at the close of their account. But in John, here it is. 
right here in the second chapter, right up at the very beginning. There are some who've said, well, there must have been two such cleansing experiences. No, I don't think so. Because of all of the hatred that was targeted toward Jesus, when he did what he did in the cleansing of the temple, he probably could not have done it twice. So it's the same account. Beginning now, verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, there are three Jewish Passovers during the earthly ministry, three years of the ministry of the Lord Jesus. We have uh, significant events in the life of Jesus described at the first of those Passovers and the third of the Passovers. And this was that first, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. By the way, have you ever noticed this? That it always, the Old Testament or the New Testament, anytime it says about going to Jerusalem, it's always going up to Jerusalem. Always. Now, when you go to Jerusalem, you find that, oh, like Rome and like San Francisco and some other cities, it's a, it's a city of seven hills. Not mountains. I'm, I'm amazed. When I, when I think about David waxing so eloquent about those mountains round about Jerusalem and those little molehills, what in the wide world? He wouldn't have been able to contain himself if he'd gotten over here in the Smokies. But you see, it was up on a hill, and so I don't care which direction you ever started out from, you always had to go up in order to get to Jerusalem. Now, there's a spiritual lesson in that. You preachers develop it, preach a good sermon. All right. After it had been at Capernaum, there on the Lake of Galilee, with his mother and brothers, the disciples, stayed for a few days. It's almost time for the Jewish Passover. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. And so he made a whip out of cords, and he drove them from the temple area. Sheep and cattle, he scattered the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. And to those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here! How dare you turn my father's house into a market? Now you see, here's one of those parentheses John inserts then. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Then back to the narrative. Then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus answered them, do you destroy this temple? And I'll raise it up again in three days. The Jews replies, has it taken, why it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to build it back up in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was of his body. And after, and here's another one of those parentheses, after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recall what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken in the parentheses. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. 
the cleansing of the temple is not one of the miraculous signs. It was a great act of boldness. He did perform other miraculous signs that are not recorded for us, but what was the result of it? First, his glory was revealed, and secondly, people believed, you see. That's the reason for that. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. You believe that? In other words, that's simply, John was saying, Jesus did not need to have anybody teach him about what was in the heart or the mind of anybody else. that and so he cleanses the temple fast over time the temple tax the tables the marketplace don't don't draw the wrong conclusion of this that here is a condemnation by Jesus of commerce and trades not that at all it's just that everything has its right and proper place and in the house of God we ought not to be merchandisers It's, it's popular today to rail against the TV evangelist, but they make it so easy for us to do it. And you can listen to the average TV evangelist, and you can find that about 50% of the time is trying to sell you a Bible or a cloth or a pen or a this, or a that, or the other, in order to finance this poor, troubled ministry. And only a few little tiny minutes ever given over to the declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Bible teacher said, those who do not know Christ do not need to hear constant appeals for financial support for the work of Christ. They need to hear of the gospel of Christ. Christian folks, isn't it a shame how much we have to spend, how much time we have to spend, how much money, how much energy in trying to get Christians to be good stewards? My wife's grandfather, whom I never had the privilege of knowing, but I've heard so many statements about him and from him down through Sue's family that I felt like I knew Paul Jones. Paul Jones said he always dreaded to see real hot days come in West Tennessee because he was afraid he could stand there and watch the Methodist church melt because it had been built on ice cream and cake suppers. when we have to resort to this or to that or the other in order to raise funds to do the work of God, to send missionaries and keep our schools operating and our children's homes and, and, and to do the work of the kingdom of God, when we have to engage in these kind of things, we're not a lick different. 
from the folks who were in the temple, making it a thing of merchandise. You see, there is a message for us as Christians in this. It's important that we give. It is important the spirit with which we give. I'll tell you, I wish I had a dollar for every minute that I had spent trying to convince Christians across my ministry that they ought to tithe, that God says you ought to tithe, that it's in the word of God that you ought to tithe, that that's God's way. If you don't, you're a thief and a robber. If I had a dollar for every minute I'd spent, my retirement would sure be padded a lot better than it is. Jesus was not condemning commerce. He was condemning where it was taking place and its purpose. In the house of God, we need to dwell on the word of God. We need to pray. We need to have sweet Christian fellowship. We need to share with each other the glories of what God has been doing in our lives. And when we give our testimonies, not a testimony of what was 20 years ago or 15 years ago or 50 years ago, but the testimony of what God did in my life yesterday and this morning. And that's what Jesus was saying. So we have the cleansing of the temple. And then in the third chapter, we come to this magnificent passage that deals with Nicodemus. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. All right. To use the terminology, I'm not sure exactly that you'll understand or I know the full meaning. Uh, the deck is cut a little differently here. There was a man of the Pharisees. The mindset of a Pharisee, remember that. So much we, I tell you, we, we miss so many times the full intent of some teaching or some experience or some episode because we read the Bible too quickly. We need to stop. We need to read it. We need to put on the clothes that they wore and take our shoes off and put some sandals on and just imagine ourselves right there read these passages very slowly. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Oh, we've read that a jillion times. Back it up. There was a man of the Pharisees. Now, all that Jesus had to say about Pharisees. Sometimes I think they received a bad lick. They sure thought they were on the right track. They held the banner high. The trouble was they thought they were the only folks who had an inside track on the truth and everybody else was lost and going to hell. They were legalist of the legalist. You can be so legal that you squeak. You can be so legal and so orthodox that every word you say can be bathed in a scripture quotation. But you can have the spirit of the Pharisee, which as I've said before, make you as mean as the devil. The spirit of the Pharisee was that the end justifies any means to get it done. You see, that was the whole thing in the Crusades. They're infidels over there in the Holy Land 
we must go. And so if we, if we kill several million folks to do it, okay, it's all right. There's more than one way to kill a man. You can kill him physically, you can kill him emotionally, you can kill him spiritually. Kill his spirit. The Pharisee. The Pharisee was somebody who knew the word of God, knew the Old Testament, as we know the Old Testament, knew the law, loved that. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. By the way, don't, don't let this truth escape you. And that is that out of this magnificent experience that is described by John between Jesus and Nicodemus, there is no word at the conclusion of the conversation that Nicodemus believed Jesus. But where do we find that he did believe? After the crucifixion. And the body of Jesus was in a borrowed tomb. The man who owned the tomb came with one named Nicodemus who took the body and buried him. He came to Jesus at night. Now that's significant because when we get over into the fourth chapter, we take a look at Jesus in his conversation with the woman at the well. That conversation took place in the middle of the day. Here, this man came by night. I don't know why he came by night especially. I've heard sermons and I've read commentaries that he came by night because being a Pharisee, he didn't want his fellow Pharisees to know he was talking with this heretic, Jesus. And yet, he had heard Jesus, he had seen Jesus, something had happened in his own heart, in his own spirit, and he wanted to talk to him. And he came and he said, Rabbi, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. There is no way that simple black and white words printed on a piece of paper can convey what that meant. Rabbi. First, the very thing that he called him. Jesus was not a graduate of one of the seminaries that the rabbis ran. Jesus had not been duly and properly ordained. Last week, we saw an interesting experience in the Roman Catholic Church, the first schism in 118 years, when the archbishop, rebelling against the Pope, ordained four bishops. And the Pope excommunicated him. By the way, there you find is another characteristic of folks who think they have a corner on the truth. They will excommunicate those and say, you don't belong anymore. And the second thing is always blood. The Pharisee always demands blood. In the case of Jesus, they got it. He said, Rabbi, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. What an admission. 
for no one could perform the miraculous signs that you are doing. Notice the present tense, that you are constantly doing. If God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I want to tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Born again? How can a man be born when he's old? Surely he cannot enter a second time in his mother's womb and be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of the water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh and the spirit gives birth to the spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, Nicodemus. You must be born again. Been interesting that a president of the United States from your state, in his constant use of the term born again, made a hard, secular press. Reporters, not used to that kind of talk, constantly ask over and over again, what are you talking about, born again? And President Jimmy Carter made the term born again, though a biblical term and around since Jesus spoke it 2,000 years ago, still unknown to the world at large. He has put born again into the common vocabulary of the English-speaking world. Jesus said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Now, we haven't got time to read all the scriptures about this. Let's look at some, some high points at this. Nicodemus had a high station in life. He was a ruler. His inquiry, he was attracted by the sign miracles that comes, and he pays Jesus the high compliment when he calls him rabbi. Jesus says, unless... You're born again. You can't even see God. Nicodemus, like the world at large, even the religious world at large is perplexed. Says, I don't, I don't understand that. He said, born of the water and the spirit. Here, we must take that in as conjunctive, both cleansing and spiritual endowment that comes in that experience of the spiritual birth coming into the kingdom of God. Then Jesus talks about the wind. He says, Nicodemus, the wind blows. And you don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it goes. But you, but you see the results of the wind. I, I look out now where I'm able. You just look up and see old me. And I'm able to look out the windows, that beautiful lake and the trees. And as the wind is gently blowing, the leaves are rustling there. I don't know where that wind came from or where it's going, but I can see it's working in that way. And Jesus was saying to Nicodemus, the Spirit of God in our lives is, is, works in exactly the same sort of way. Verses 11 through 15 deals Jesus' monologue concerning the spiritual birth. He used the term lifted up. That refers to his cross. Unless the Son of Man be lifted up. That refers back to Numbers 21, 5 through 9. Jesus is glorified in his cross. Now listen, nail this down if you forget everything else that I said last night or so far today or any other time. Don't you forget this, that the glory of Jesus Christ was in his cross. Others said it's a tragedy. Others said what a shame. 
Others said it's a criminal action. But Jesus knew that he left heaven, came to earth, would live a perfect, sinless life, that he would be the perfect Lamb of God, slain from before the foundations of the earth in order that he might be lifted up that all men might be drawn to God through him. The glory of Jesus Christ was in his cross. That's the reason he was born. I have four fine children. Eight magnificent and wonderful grandchildren. Spend a lot of time telling you about them. And every one of them have made repeated visits to the pediatricians and to the doctors and medicines and this and that and the other. Why? So they'll be healthy? Yep. So they'll live as long as possible. Born to live. Jesus was born to die. He came into the world to die. His glory is in the cross. In the synoptic gospels, glorification came really only after the cross, but in John's gospel, we see that the glorification leading up to the cross is the significant part of the totality of it. John 3, 19, 21, he talks about judgment, and it centers upon the personal relationship to Jesus. Talked about the crucifixion. Paul, writing to the Corinthian Christians, said, We preach Christ crucified. We preach Christ crucified. We need to hear what he said, we need to watch what he did to observe the sign miracles. But if we ignore the crucifixion of Christ as one who paid our debt upon that cross and made it possible for us to experience spiritual birth and to become literally the children of God through faith in him, with the exercise of faith, which faith in itself is the gift of God given to us to put in Christ. We can know a great deal about Jesus and never know Jesus. We know him only when we come to realize what his crucifixion really accomplished. And then we come to the Samaritan time where Jesus talks with the Samaritan woman. And this is different from Nicodemus. He was high. He was mighty. He came at night. He was a Jew. He made no confession immediately upon that at that moment after the conversation. But the but the woman at the well, it's totally different. She was low estate. She was out there at the well at noon. Now the time to draw water in Samaria was not at noon. The time to draw water was early in the morning or as the sun would be setting in the evening, cooler then. See, drawing water from the well and taking it back to the house was the woman's work. It's always a mystery to me why any woman wouldn't love Jesus. The difference she's made, he has made, in the appreciation for every woman. 
she had to go at noon because the other women wouldn't have anything to do with her. She had to go out there when the sun was hot and high. And it was at that time Jesus came along. Normally a Jew skirts Samaria. Jesus went through Samaria. And he talked to her. Asked her for a drink. in that marvelous discourse in fact he said I'm the living water if you ask of me I'll give you water and you'll never be thirsty again she said oh please give me some of it said I'm so sick and tired of coming out here by myself at noon every day drawing this water said the folks won't have anything to do with me said, no no I'm not talking about that I'm talking about the water that springs up unto life everlasting then he talked to her about herself you see he knew all about her You don't have a husband. He said, that's right. No, I don't have a husband. Well, you see, Jesus knew he had five. Living with a man now wasn't her husband. And out of that glorious and wonderful experience, when he told her all things about herself, she believed in him. And she did the work of an evangelist. She rushed back to town. She said, listen, i got to tell you about a man told me about everything I ever did. Don't you know there were a lot of fellows over there in Sychar that were beginning to twitch in their sandals? They were afraid she was going to get up in prayer meeting and a testimony meeting and call names. Jesus, when the disciples, the disciples had gone off to buy groceries, they found a little 7-Eleven convenience store down the way. So they bought some groceries, and they came back and said, Master, come on, it's time to eat. He said, I'm really not hungry. He said, not hungry? He said, I've been walking all the time. He said, you're here in the middle of the day. Said, what do you mean you're not hungry? He said, oh, he said, I've got, I've just enjoyed some food you fellows don't know anything about. It's a wonderful thing when you think about what happened there, the matter of the living water. And Jesus declared his Messiahship to her when she tried to get him into an argument about where you're supposed to worship. Now, if you've ever tried to do any soul winning, you know that folks always want to argue with you about something. Jesus wasn't going to let that sidetrack him. But he acknowledged before, I that speak to you am he, the Messiah, the Christ. Oh, that's a marvelous and a wonderful experience. Time long since gone. Not nearly far enough along. We'll not get through it. I can see that right now as I look out over the fields ahead. But we're going to keep plowing. And thank you for your steady time. Thank you so much, Dr. McIntyre. Pick out one or two things that you want to keep in your mind and ask the Lord to sort of plant those deeply in your soul that you can take them back with you. It's time for break. We are running behind schedule as we normally always do in meetings like this. Let's remember now we're not here at this time to fellowship and break so much as we are to learn. And then this afternoon you have all the time that you get together. 
So let's take about uh, 10 minutes and try to be in our classrooms at 25 minutes till 11. Everybody grab a place and, and get in it and get involved in the study. And those who are teaching seminars, be sure and release them now about uh, 11.20 so they can get back over here by 11.30 and be ready for worship. So let's move on, get our water, say hello, and do anything else we need to do, and then get to our seminars. Classrooms, if you go like you're going to the uh, cafeteria, when you go out that door to the left or upstairs is number four.